Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very happy to be with Adam Tzur. I actually don't think I pronounced that last name right, so I'm going to get you to actually pronounce your name, Adam. <laughs> How do you pronounce that? Yeah, it's Tzur. Uh, it's sir. almost okay. like like almost like sir, but with a T Got uh, you. in front. But uh, I just looking at my name, it's not very intuitive how you're supposed to pronounce it. <laughs> it's all the uh, European names. Uh, like from, I was just we're joking off air about how I'm awful at pronouncing names. Like British people, I think are notorious for like just being like, why don't you just speak English? Come on, guys. Uh, so anyway, uh, to introduce Adam, um, he is from SciFit. He launched that in 2016, um, and he owns that and uh, is still publishing kind of articles, which are all based around kind of study collections around fitness and nutrition. Uh, so you may have actually stumbled across his website. I was just telling Adam that I used to uh, kind of stumble across it now and then and dig into articles. And when I was like in that, I guess your early evidence-based career where you're like trying to read everything and digest everything there is. And then I recently stumbled stumbled across it and a really cool article that we're going to be talking a bit more about. And I really like this podcast partly. It's great. It's at a size where I can maybe bring a person's face to an audience who haven't seen it yet. And I think that might be the case for Adam. And I think he's definitely a person, a lot of you, if you're not already following his work and following him, definitely want to be. And I know you've got some future kind of projects in the in the line for uh, Cypher as well. And I know it was partly inspired by Greg Knuckles uh, from his original strength theory and now Stronger by Science. And you can definitely see that. And if people know what kind of the Greg, the work Greg produces, it's very, very similar and very much in depth, uh, which is awesome. I don't know if Adam, you want to go a bit more about your background, who you are. And also, I, I know you have a really cool kind of message on your uh, website where you go over kind of your philosophy and approach. And I think the audience will really appreciate hearing that. Sure. Uh, I just had a comment first when you said that British people, you know, mispronounce things. You really make up with it with your awesome accent. So, you know, <laughs> there's no worries about that. Uh, and in terms of like the website, uh, it started in 2016. Uh, it was basically, like you said, inspired by Stronger by, uh, by Strength Theory, as it was known at that time. And actually, it was Greg who picked me up uh, on Reddit because I wrote a lot of some sort of research summary and he actually asked me to write an article for his website. So Greg is actually the inspiration for SciFit and we've, we've worked together previously on articles and stuff. So uh, I would definitely, I, I just, Stronger by Science now is the, one of the best, I would say the best sites on evidence-based fitness. But yeah, about, um, about SciFit, it's, it was basically a reaction to that I was reading so many articles and I was learning about fitness there so many conflicting articles on different websites, you know, on on different bodybuilding websites, and everyone had their own advice depending on what the author was, and the advice was conflicting. So I was like, okay, we need some sort of way to figure out what's is there any sort of objective truth here? So uh, you know, the evidence-based fitness sphere I think has been very uh, inviting because uh, here you can actually start, um, you can use anecdotal evidence like opinions, but you you have your prime the primary you know foundation for your beliefs is in the object the, the empirical evidence you know from research and then you you know you adapt it based on uh, you know your opinions and uh, personal experiences and i know within your philosophy then you kind of touched on it a little bit there was um you had kind of a section where you talked about kind of why you like to rely on studies 
more than anecdote and you had kind of a few bullet points i'd love to i think the audience would appreciate that because i think a lot of them are like yeah like don't rely on anecdote that's a wee weak form of evidence but i don't know if they necessarily understand exactly why that wouldn't be the way to go yeah um there's so oftentimes anecdotes and um scientific evidence are sort of like put up versus one another and i also do it as well in some sense because uh, you know you'll often hear um arguments or especially online you know people will say well uh, this coach said that you should train two times every day and he has trained many world athletes therefore you know i will do that or uh, some some friend has some, has an experience i've looked at my friend he he trains once every year and he's huge right so uh, you know and then people they you know you'll draw conclusions based on that but the problem with the problem with these you know individual observations or your personal experiences is that they're very limited so research by definition is looking at large groups of people and they like figure out on average what works right so uh, if you're trying out to figure out how often you should train or if you should take a protein supplement or whatever it is, it's better to start by figuring out what works for most people on average, right? And then you can individualize it. But if you start with individualization by looking at one data point, basically what one coach says or what your experience is, then it's it's very narrow and you can't generalize it to a larger, you know, to a general principle based on your personal experience. Yeah, and I know one of the points you mentioned, or at least it was like, a, I guess it, this is the, the term, it's like survivorship bias. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of how that might relate to different diets, training programs, that sort of thing. Yeah, this is the perfect, this is the perfect example of in, um, in terms of like maybe bodybuilding competitors. Like, so survivorship bias deals with when you look at a, let's say you look at the top 10 bodybuilders today. And you're like, okay, I want to learn what made them go to the top. And then you go and copy their routine. And you assume that whatever you can see is what got them there, you know? But maybe it's something that you didn't see that got them there. For example, let's say 100 bodybuilders, um, they, do, um, they don't do squats, right? And um, one of them becomes pro. And the one who becomes pro, you look at him and you, you look at his program and it's like, oh, wait, this guy, he doesn't squat. So therefore, I shouldn't squat if I want to become pro. But then you don't look at the 99 other bodybuilders who also tried to become pro and didn't squat, but it failed for most of them. But you can't see them because they didn't survive the process. Therefore, survivorship bias. So, you know, that this, is, this applies to absolutely everything. Whenever you look at a, a lead of people and you're trying to look at their program or diet or nutrition you don't know if you're looking at you know the, if the survivorship bias you know maybe what they're doing isn't the reason they got there you know maybe it's something as simple as genetics which could be one thing you can't see yeah i think i think when people hear that as well at least i know where i've tried like i think i'm pretty, I'm pretty sure i've tried like i don't know phil heath's program out of flex mm. magazine or something and i've done these things and like you see all these uh, people who have done it and apparently it's like worked for them and or a diet, for example. Uh, I've tried loads of different diets and I was just like, you, you feel like you're the problem, um, but you're <laughs> yeah. just like potentially picking on like you. a lot of the time it's not individualizing it to you and kind of looking at, I guess, the scientific principles or the mechanisms behind it. And you're just hoping that, oh, because this guy did it, it should work for me. And 
I guess it's horrible. I know a lot of personal trainers rely on that methodology in terms of uh, like, this is what's worked for me. I'm going to apply it to my clients. All my clients, they should be able to do this. Otherwise, they're, they're too weak to, su- to survive it in mm. some ways. Um, they're, they're the problem, not what I'm doing. Whereas like that's where science can really be helpful because you can truly individualize. You can start understanding the person as an individual. Yeah, so uh, that's a very important point there. That even though you can look at scientific principles and base your training around that, you can still individualize and use anecdotes, you know? It's just that you use them. Um, the general recommendation is to start with like start with the average, see what works on average, and then you use your personal experience to see how you respond um, to whatever program or whatever thing you're trying to do. But always start with what should work in a scientific sense. But you know we'll probably get into this later. But there's a lot of even in the scientific average, there's a lot of you know. An average can consist, like an average of 50 can consist of zeros and hundreds, right? So, uh, you know, you can, some people respond well to a program and some people respond poorly to a program, even though the average is good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I wanted to start off our discussion in terms of, obviously, you really appreciate the science and that Mm. is something that you think you really value. And I think we all value as kind of evidence-based practitioners or people who Mm. use the evidence to our advantage, but it does have limitations and anecdote is also part of evidence-based practice. It's just not necessarily, it's not where you start, right? Uh, Where you start is with the science, but there's still even problems then with science. And that's why it's not, it doesn't give you the answer. You can't kind of have this research paper and be like, oh yeah, that means it's going to work exactly for me, exactly how it worked for those people in that study. Because like I, I read through, and this is what drew me to Adam was because he has this article on his website, which I will definitely link below, which was essentially talking about the limitations of studies. I think it's really important for this podcast to talk about that because we talk about studies all the time, but we don't necessarily always talk about the limitations. And even if people coming on are aware of the limitations, um, they might not think to kind of embellish upon that, or maybe they're not looking at a study because they see all the limitations. But I think it's important to at least go through some of them. And in the article, there's there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot of limitations to science. Uh, But I don't know if you want to start, if there's something if there's one that really really kind of i don't know if you have a priority that you like or if there's any that you Mm. particularly like talking about otherwise i can kind of throw throw one of them at you yeah i think it would be better if you just told me what you want to talk about because like the article the background for the article was that i was i noticed there was various limitations in research and then i started to just basically make a list you know and the list grew and grew and then i figured oh there's so many potential limitations and I eventually accepted that every article will have limitations and that, you know, we shouldn't reject an article uh, simply based on its limitations, but it's important to know what the limitations are. So, you know, just um, start in whichever end you feel is uh, the most productive. Yeah, for sure. And this is the, the, the reason I love this is because it's like that middle ground that we were chalk is people will think of like PubMed warriors are they kind of like uh, like religious to the science or whatever they think they're being scientific <laughs> yeah. in that way but then you have like the bros who are like no this is like I don't know the limitations and they, they know some of them and they're right with some mm. of them but they just poo-poo every single scientific study which again it's not the best place to be so somewhere in that gray like gray area in the middle um, is where kind of you're coming from and where we're trying to come with evidence-based fitness but uh, one of the ones I'd love to talk about uh, because I think it's very important for a lot of them is the kind of the duration of a study um, mm. and, and that mm. why that inherently will cause limitations. 
this is a big one. Yeah, that's a really big one. That's a good choice because the, there are so many studies today, fitness studies particularly, that are like four weeks, five weeks, you know. And the issue there is that, you know, it's there's a reason they're so short is that, first of all, studies are really expensive and running studies over time is really expensive. And also people don't want to be in a study that lasts for a year. You know, you don't like, let's say, you know, Steve, if I told you, okay, so let's say you have a good program. Okay. never mind. You're not going to do that. You're going to be randomized into the study where you get either the good program or the, you know, the (laughs) control, the bad control program. Okay. So now you're randomized into the bad control program for a year and you're going to do that for a year. Would you, (laughs) would you give up, uh, you know, a year of your training just for some scientific, um, principle <laughs> absolutely no doubt <laughs> no, I don't think yeah, I there's, would do so there's no way <laughs> <laughs> you know i can do it uh, most of us wouldn't you know and that's that's the reason that's the reason why studies are sh- one of the reasons why studies are so short is that people don't want to give up their you know especially we want trained participants you know we want trained people yeah. into the studies for a year and they should give up their program to do some other program or some other diet that might not work because it's experimental or it's just a boring control diet <laughs> so um so yeah there's a reason studies are short but the problem is that you know i think hypertrophy measured in uh, CSA, for example, the cross-sectional area of the muscle, it, I think it's like a minimum of three, four weeks that you, that's like the point where you need the minimal amount of time you need to detect statistically significant changes in muscle, muscle cross-sectional area. So you said, you said two months in the article. I don't know if that, it, it sounds close. If it was two months in the article, then I, it was probably wrong because I've seen studies. I wrote okay. it in 2017, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I've seen studies later that said, that have said three or four weeks. Okay. But it depends but still, on what you're measuring. Like if you're measuring yeah. measuring like lean body mass, I think it takes longer. But if you're measuring cross-sectional area, then it's shorter. So I guess it depends on what you're measuring. If you're measuring muscle protein synthesis, then it's like, you know, days or even hours, depending on how you want to look at it. But it depends on how you want to measure it. But anyways, uh, five, four or five weeks isn't really enough to, you know, because you want to try to figure out, does this program or does this diet work or does this technique work? You can't, um, if you want to figure this out, if you will work in the long term, then you need a long-term study. But like I said, it's expensive. It's unlikely that people will do them, these studies. Yeah, I think, yeah, like, I don't know, just inherently, I'm thinking, how much muscle am I gaining, like, as a trained individual in four to five weeks? I mean, yeah. I, I pray that I've gained some muscle. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's certainly not going to be like something I, de- I, I just doubt it's going to be particularly detectable. Mm. Uh, it, it's so like gaining phases that for trained lifters are extended for exactly that reason. Things are so slow. So I can see mm. why. In literature, it can be so hard. And I know you said in the article as well, like a lot of the periodization literature kind of suggests that there's no difference. And and we mm. actually, I think that will come as no surprise to the listeners, like a lot of kind of the evidence-based folks will say, like, that's what the, the literature says. But in practice, when they coach as mm. well, it seems to make a difference. But mm. I mean, periodization is long-term uh, and yes. the studies unfortunately can't necessarily always be that long and they like you just, yeah. just said yeah yeah you can't do like a like periodization i mean that could go on um, that could go for like i don't know how long your cycles are but 
I've seen, I've heard of like long cycles, like uh, half a year, year, or, you know, so um, the study is, if the study is like six weeks, then it can't inform you about what will happen in a year or two. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's, that's a big, that's a big issue. And um, it also means that sometimes when you don't detect differences, like you say, there could be a difference. It's just hiding behind 10 more years of training or 10 more um, weeks of training, not years. <laughs> yeah. But uh, like it could be detected, but it needs more time. So that's another problem. Yeah. It's always kind of, yeah. You, when you look at a study, you're like, oh, I just wish they kept measuring that for a, a little bit longer mm. just to see kind of what might have happened. And then you start like spitballing and guessing what, what maybe mm. could have been, but then like you, you can't do that. So no, yeah. that that's a great one. And um, another one, actually, I guess it kind of leads into the duration a little bit is the number of participants um, and how mm. that can create a problem. I know with like statistical power, um, I mm -hmm. thought that was really well described in the article that I don't think people will maybe appreciate. Yeah, so uh, I hope this. Um, I hope whenever I, you know, whenever I talk about statistics, you know, I can just see the eyes of people gloss over. Uh, so I, I'll try to just keep everything about statistics brief because I think there's like a small minority of stats people who are like, yes, let's talk about statistics, <laughs> yeah. and then there's like ninety nine point nine percent of people who are like, oh my god, this is so boring. <laughs> so, um, in terms of like the statistical power, is basically does the study have enough the possibility to detect whatever it's looking for, right? So if you're looking for a difference, let's say you're doing training program A and training program versus training program B. Um, you want to see if training program B is better. But if you have three participants, you don't, you need a huge effect. Like you need a huge difference to be able to detect the, the, detect the difference. Um, but if you have 200 participants, you can detect a difference even if it's much smaller. This is what statistical power is, is that for, there's, it's you know, affected by many things, but the number of participants in the study is a big one. Uh, and it's easier to detect, statistically detect differences between people. You're more sure of your conclusions if you have more people in the study. But again, you know, it's expensive, it's hard to get people, and people don't want to do another training program for a long time. So this is why you have small sample studies. Yeah, I think it's it's not uncommon to see like, I mean, you're not going to get 100, 100 plus people. No. You're, you're talking about tens of people. Mm. And yeah, when uh, it was, you really well described that where you might be looking at a study, it might say there's no difference. But I mean, if there's only a handful of people, it's so difficult for it yeah. to have, like it would, like you said, it would have to be a night and day difference to have, to have actually shown that. Yeah. So uh, again, people might jump on the abstract or they might not understand this, mm. that, that, that kind of statistical uh, power. And then they might say, oh yeah, clearly then there's no difference. And it's kind of like, well, the study yeah. isn't like a s strong statement for that because just yeah. wasn't well powered in that sense. And I've heard that kind of been said yeah. And I just think maybe now the listeners, but oh, that, that makes sense. So I think you explained that really well. Mm -hmm. Then I thanks. guess another one, sorry, go on. I just wanted to say thanks. Oh, oh awesome. <laughs> uh, so yeah, another one, I guess, in talking about kind of the number of people is also the people mm. uh, and particularly like gender. Mm. And you kind of talked about age mm. and the type of person that's often within studies. Yes. So another issue with, um, as you can detect the theme here, is that it's hard to recruit people. So one thing that happens is that scientists do convenience sampling. 
And that's why convenience sampling is when you select people, you ask people that are nearby, that are easy to get. So, for example, that's why you have so many studies about fitness and nutrition with men in college in their 20s. It's because those are the subjects that are easy to get and that are willing to participate in the study, right? So you have a ton of studies on males in college in the 20s, but you don't have a lot of studies in, like, you don't have a lot of hypertrophy studies in women or in older people. You are having, you, you do have some in older people because of sarcopenia, you know, the muscle loss. So for that reason, people, scientists want to keep old people active for longer. So they, they recruit some older people to, but they won't do like, you know, like, um, um some some modern training program they'll just do like does resistance training work or does it doesn't it work you know like simpler studies but there are some there are some periodization studies but it's mostly in younger people you know and frequency studies and stuff like that so uh, i kind of forgot where what was the the question again the i think you pretty much covered it where yeah, yeah. like it's it's that opportunity who who's yeah. available who's willing yeah. and it's often males in their 20s which will be a lot yeah. of the listeners but they're also obviously also a lot of the time not particularly trained uh, not trained or, either yeah that's that's a, actually something i thought was really interesting that you pointed out was sometimes <laughs> i don't know how often this it's just a, one of those you can't be sure of but often mm. they the uh scientists will rely on the person being like yeah i'm trained like I've been, yeah i've been lifting <laughs> like five years yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean you have to you have to trust like in, in studies, I believe most studies, they will just ask the participants, participants how long they've trained. And then they're like, oh, I've trained for five years. But like, yeah, but have you trained on and off for five years? Was five years the first time you started? Or have you been actively training two times a week for five years? And what's your one, like, what's your one rep max in the bench and the squat and stuff like that? Some, a lot of studies, they, they're, they're good. They're actually testing. They're doing a baseline test of how strong you are. But you can also see like there's a dis discrepancy and like they say they've been training for 10 years, but the data of their one rep max shows that you are not as strong as we suspect you should have been if you were trained. So yeah, there are limitations there as well. <laughs> so yeah, hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign yeah, up. Yeah, I think that yeah. I've, I've seen studies, probably more recent ones, where they have tested, which I think is so important because, yeah, if they just ask, mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, what's your, like, one rep max in the the big three or something and the person's just like i don't know I, I don't, especially young males in their 20s they probably want to sound kind of like stronger and bigger than they are so they probably do embellish some of these things so mm. uh, yeah I, I guess that's something i uh, at least some of the studies they are trying to kind of prevent that sort of thing coming into it too much um mm. i guess one of the other points to move on to uh is kind of the the adherence part mm -hmm. of it uh, i know you talked about that in terms of like they're in this study and they've got like coaches with them and how that could impact actually mm. real world versus within a study and the difference mm. there but so can you can you formulate that question a bit differently like how it's in the real world versus the study world yeah i think it's i mm. guess one of the examples i think of is like people talk about uh trains of failure studies and things mm. and like in some mm. of them they're like I don't know, not holding a literal gun to someone's head, but they're screaming and shouting like one more rep or in other ones, <laughs> yeah. 
they will be like they don't want to cause harm to the participants when the participants mm. like i'm mm. done even though maybe they're not truly like actually at that kind of uh objective fatigue point and then in the real mm. world how are you at pushing yourself like yeah. relative to that and i guess there's other kind of implications there like are you actually getting your ass to the gym or are you actually like uh, um, doing yeah. the same range of motion this person's doing in the gym like in mm. the study versus out yes very good point um so in studies you know they try to control as much as possible they you know they control the humidity the room temperature or at least good studies they're like control as many factors as they can they put people in special uh, environments that are like with with a coach who's like like you say he's sh who's shouting at you who's trying to if you're training to failure he's making sure you're getting going to failure um but and then you may get certain results in that study but if people you know try to do this in the real world by themselves you know you're in a crowded gym with a lot of noise you don't have control of the humidity and the temperature you don't have a coach screaming at you um you're trying to do what they did in the study but you're not sure if you're doing it correctly you know or even you know if the study says that they're squatting you know are you squatting into the same depth as they are in the study you know in the study they will often you know make sure that you're doing it correctly so you might not get the same results uh, if you're doing things by yourself, even if you're trying to sort of imitate the study, uh, because there are many things you can't control that are being controlled in the study. Even things like diet, you know, in many studies, they even do like diet controls that they will, um, you know, have people fill out forms. They will send meals with the participants. They will ask to get the remains back and weigh the remains to see how much they didn't eat. You know, there's, you know, and all these things, unless you're doing them, you have a coach who does this for you. The, the results might, might not be, you know, perfectly transferable, you know. So that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also I'm starting a bit when I'm talking, I'm a bit worried that, you know, people will, you know, we'll talk about all the limitations, you know, people will eventually think that, you know, the studies will never apply to you. But that's not the case at all. It's just that you have to keep the limitations in mind when reading the studies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's tricky not to sound like super pessimistic with all these things, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think it's like awareness is so important as well. And as we've mentioned, I think like there's definitely like some higher quality studies being done where they are thinking about these things a little bit more um, and kind of ensuring for that. And yeah, it's that that's just something so difficult to control for in terms of like people cheating themselves in the gym and not kind of doing the form correctly. And I guess, I mean, I think, I don't know, you might even know this, Adam, but I think there's even been studies on kind of having a, a coach train you for, it may have been done, like a coach train you through a program versus you just be given a program. Mm -hmm. And when a coach takes you through one, like you just, uh, the, the results are better. I don't know if that's actually been studied or if I've made that up or if I've heard that somewhere and it's, it's actually happened. It's true. It's true. There's definitely studies on that. And there's one, they didn't, it wasn't a coach, but it was like a diary program, you know, like a, a digital diary where they secretly monitored participants uh, and they asked them, you know, can you fill out this training diary every day, you know, and, you know, can you open it and fill it out? And we want to make sure that you're using it every day. Um, and they actually, interestingly, they found that, you know, some people, um, a lot of people didn't open it because they had like an electronic sensor on the diary. And they found that a lot of people didn't actually open it at all, almost, even though they said they did. So, um, 
it's kind of it's kind of important that you know things like adherence you know are you adhering to what you're saying you're going to do is so important but it's so easy to you know go by the wayside uh, and this is not just a limitation of studies but also in your in your own training i mean a lot of people uh, even myself you know we skip the training but how often do you skip training you know like how is it like a routine that you skip training every other week you know and uh, as uh, you probably know steve you know once you start making a habit of skipping things that it's very hard to sort of get back in and get to where you're supposed to be so there's a lot of things to think about no absolutely and uh, i guess in the in the same line of thought in terms of like it's almost that specificity type of thing in terms of what was the population studied, but also mm. for training studies, uh, particularly like they might be just like measuring the biceps and not mm. the rest of the body yet. Someone might choose mm. to now try and apply that somewhere else, or they might be training with this equipment and you've got this equipment and how that might not necessarily transfer. Mm. Yes. Uh, so in like the type of measurement is important. Yeah. So if you like reading studies, you'll see that some studies, they measure muscle mass by uh, DEXA. You know, they, they, they estimate based on your, you know, water status and the, the, the body basically scans your body, you know, the machine scans your body. And then you get like an estimate to like, we think you have so this many kilos or pounds of muscle and this much water and this much uh, fat mass and, you know, skeletal mass. So um, that's one way to measure muscle. Uh, there's also the cross-sectional area that I talked about that basically looks at a cross-section, also uh, uh, just one area or one sort of, uh, I don't know how to explain better. Like I, I assume people understand when I say cross-section, sort of understand what I mean if you like, kind of like cut your muscle in half. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, then you get a very local result, you know, like at that cross-section, you can see the size but can you uh, generalize what you're seeing at that point you're measuring? Uh, so the, the type of hypertrophy you're measuring has a lot to say about what kind of evidence you'll find. We've, we saw some studies that they found a difference in cross-sectional area, but they did not find a difference in total lean body mass, right? So, you know, the type, the type of measurement you're making is really important. Um, is it local? Is it general? You know, what, what is it supposed to be? And if you get a, if, even if you get like after a program, you get a, um, significant gains in your biceps, maybe you didn't in your quads, right? So, you know, what that which applies for one area of your body, it doesn't necessarily apply for the other parts of your body. And also if you're measuring the wrong thing, like if you're measuring something that you didn't get a statistical significance results, and you conclude that there is no difference. Maybe if you measured another side in your body, you would get a significant result. So, uh, you know, so, so um, never assume that just because a study has or does not have a statistically significant result, that it, it could be different if they did a different measurement. Is there a particular measurement you like for hypertrophy? Is there one you would say you're kind of, that's the kind of gold standard for you? I don't think there is. a. Uh, I would say DEXA when you're controlling for water mass is good um because then you know water mass can influence how much muscle mass you have you know because muscles are to a large extent water so if you're really dehydrated your lean mass will go down you know your muscles it's interesting just go on a no carb diet just don't eat any carbs and don't drink much water 
well, I'm not recommending you do this, but like hypothetically, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you measured your muscles, there's been studies on this. If you measured your muscles, you know, your glycogen stores will deplete and you'll also be dehydrated. Your muscles will shrink in size. So you'll think, okay, wow, look how small my muscles are. But they're actually not small. It's just that there's less water and glycogen in them. And that's what you see when you do like glycogen, glycogen infusion studies, where they fill your muscles with water and glycogen. The, the, the cross-sectional area of the muscle grows by like four or five percent so you know that's another thing uh, you know the hydration of your muscles depends on how large they are so uh, i think most of us have probably experienced looking ourselves in a mirror and we're like why do i look so small today well it could be because you're either don't have enough glycogen or you're dehydrated or there's you know something something else yeah i mean that is it's just such a good point to say that mm. that if they don't take into include water it's just like yeah. that that data is so then hard to trust I, yeah. any bodybuilders listening will know exactly that feeling of like being completely flat on a diet and then you have like a refeed den and the next yeah, day yeah. you're like oh yeah um like things yeah. are, the things are popping now so yeah, uh, right. yeah. i completely relate to that to that point and i can and it makes a tremendous difference i mean that's why mm. bodybuilders do the the peaking and you mm. have the kind of cyclist studies with the depletion supercompensation. so if they don't take that into account mm. it yeah, it just makes it so hard to know actually what's been going on. You're just like, okay, I don't know what to conclude here because we have, we don't know what the water's doing. So um, that's a yeah. really good point. And then I know you had one on, and people always like to kind of talk about this. I think this is probably maybe more in the context of nutrition that people like to talk about it is like funding bias. Uh, yes. I know you said you had kind of reasons why it isn't an issue, but why it could be as well. So I think the listeners would appreciate kind of having both sides of the argument. Yeah. So this one is a really hot topic. I feel like there's a lot of emotions involved whenever you, um, whenever you talk about funding bias and if you go to Reddit or any forum, and if, if, fun, if the funding source is stated in the study, which it should be, and people mention the funding, then a lot of people are going to be like, well, you know, damn, this whole thing is biased. We can't yeah. you know, just reject the entire study because there's a, because one of the researchers went to a um, seminar sponsored by the, by some, you know, the industry. Therefore, all the research is forever should be rejected. I'm like, oh my God, please, you know, like, come on, critical thinking here. Uh, you know, maybe funding bias could be an issue, but it doesn't have to be. So, for example, when is study, when is funding an issue? I think the funding of a scientist is an issue when he receive, he or she receives a lot of funding from like some some industry sponsor who has many products that the researcher has science, you know, scientific uh, studies on maybe that project. You know, they're actually there. So there's a conflict of interest here. They're they're looking at a very particular product, and they're getting money a lot of money maybe for that researching that product and only coming up with good results for that product. Then my eyebrows are starting to raise a little bit because um, that's a bit, a bit risky, you know, but it doesn't automatically invalidate the study, but I think you should be extra careful there. And especially if the author also has books, the, the scientist also has books and products himself, you know, that he's like selling that's like, only positive he's like never critical about about the projects or about the program or whatever it is always the, all the science supports it there's only positive findings and he's never critical there's never like a limitation section in the studies and so on then you know i would say the risk of bias is the conflict of interest is a problem 
But uh, a lot of scientists also, they get funding in the sense that, let's say the university pays for a third of the study. The industry is also interested in, this, in the results. So the industry pays a third and maybe some other organization pay, that's unrelated uh, pays a third. So, okay, so is the study now biased because the industry has a, a third of funding in the study? You know, a lot of um, these studies are very con controlled in the sense that nobody except the researchers get, get a hand in the design or the results or the interpretation before everything is published. You know, like they can't do it, they can't influence it. Um, which means that, the, the yes, the researchers get money from the industry, but they're still independent in, the, in their work. So in that sense, you know, I'm not covering, there's still a lot of different points to cover here, but there are definitely many situations where if the methodology of the study is strong and uh, the, all the funding biases are, the funding sources are stated in the study, that's actually a good thing. That's not a bad thing. You know, it's worse if they're hiding the funding, you know, when it's not stated in the funding sources, then it's a, then it's a problem. So and there's also a lot of research, you know, they've tested statistically if a study is coming from a scientist who has got funding from the industry, will the result, is the result likely to be positive or negative? And in some cases, they find that yes, in the, especially pharmaceutical industry, they find that a lot of studies are positive if they're funded by the industry. But in other studies, they've not found a sort of bias. They've said, you know, the studies are likely to be positive or negative for, for the things being tested even if it's funded by the industry. So that's why what I'm saying that you, you can't just like look at just the funding and just based on that one fact conclude whether the study is biased or not. There's like so much nuance. Yeah, I guess if it's it's kind of one of those, if they're, I think, uh, would I be right in saying that in your opinion, most fund, like most of the time the funding isn't an issue and it's kind of rare that it's like quite and. and maybe it's normally quite clear that it's like this person is like they're trying to sell their snake oil and this is the <laughs> snake oil company funding this guy or girl uh, and that, yeah. do, you, do you feel like it's the more that way i don't know um you know i simply don't know um, okay. because i always like a data-based approach so when you're asking me that question the first thing i'm thinking is do i have data uh, to make an informed decision here. So the closest thing is the studies that are looking at funding bias. And uh, from what I can tell is that it depends on the industry. Some industries are more susceptible, supplements and pharmaceuticals are more susceptible to funding bias because of the nature of the industry. Other industries are less susceptible. Um, so um, I wouldn't make a general blanket statement. I would just say, you know, for the viewer, listener, Use your critical thinking, you know, look at the study methodology, look at the history of the author, look at their funding sources, look at, do they have a lot of products in addition to the funding from the, from the industry, you know, look at, look at all these things together and try to make it like a big picture. Um, and then from that, you can make, um, we had like, we did an analysis in this on SciFit with an analysis of the ketogenic, you know, industry and the biases therein. We found that some ketogenic researchers do have a lot of, you know, conflicts of interests, uh, books, products, services, uh, funding. Others do not. So, uh, you know, it's it's not an easy question to answer, but it, use use critical thinking, and then you'll you're closer to the answer. Yeah. No, I like that, and I know like mm -hmm. I, it just makes me think of this. Just comes to mind 
with uh, the mass research review. And mm. I know uh, when kind of there was a recent Bill Campbell's refeed kind of study mm. came out and I know Eric Helms, for example, has been like a big kind of, I would say, yeah, quite like a promoter of refeeds and he uses them with his athletes with great success. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, and I wouldn't be surprised, this is just like Eric, he kind of stated his biases. So mm. he was kind of like upfront when he was reviewing that study as kind of like, mm -hmm putting his like when someone's doing that not that this is directly applicable because he, he didn't do the study mm. but if someone's like outlining their bias at the get-go kind of that helps you as well but um i think you even mentioned kind of as a consumer of research this is sometimes a problem where you're not i guess it's kind of like cherry picking where you will have like your little bit of a bias towards viewing things more favorably or not favorably uh, yeah. i think that's really hard to prevent yourself doing as well yeah it's yeah definitely I, I think in my experience um anything in a study the thing with a study is you can reject or uh, accept a study like personally it's very easy just if you want to reject a study then easily find a conflict of interest or a funding and then you can reject it or a limit or just go to the limitation section and uh, find the limitation and then you can reject the study uh, if you want to accept the study, then ignore all the funding biases and the limitations and just find um, copy a sentence from the abstract and then you're good to go. So, you know, you, it's very easy to reject or accept studies uh, because, you know, uh, that's what, why, why I love science, because the limitation section is sort of obligatory. You have a limitation section. It's not a bad thing that there's a limitation section. There's a funding section. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing that these things are there. It means that the scientists are transparent. And it also means that they are aware that the study has limitations. Um, and if you can find a study without limitations and without a um, funding source, uh, it doesn't mean that the study is perfect. It just means that these things are not disclosed. And I think, I mean, you're painting... A picture I think that's really kind of just to me very apparent as a practitioner who tries to be evidence-based and use this where to like it's a little bit overwhelming like oh my gosh like I, I can't quite understand mm. all these limitations and things but I think mm. it's the, the great thing about the evidence-based industry is we kind of keep everyone in a way well not necessarily I might be slightly part of that but you, you're certainly part of that where you keep everyone to a standard where it's kind of mm. like if one of these guys I don't know like if Eric Helm started like promoting this this like kind of bullshit <laughs> study yeah people would just be like what the fuck Eric like you, you kind of can't do it and Eric knows that that, mm. that isn't something he's going to do either because he's kind of true to and people like him and within the mass research review within your mm. articles and your website these are the things your your expert in looking at research, going through everything and trying to give kind of the most objective, rational, um, evidence-based answer for it. Uh, so mm -hmm. I just say that as some, like listening to you, as I mean, I imagine a lot of the listeners are more so similar to me versus you and like you're kind of in depth looking at it a lot and kind of going through these, whereas I'm kind of more so trying to pass out kind of what's the practical value of this? Who do I kind of in a sense, trust, not that I want to be ignorant to the various biases mm. and things that could be going on. Uh, but thankfully, there are people who are doing like yourself and like the Mass Research Review, Renaissance Periodization, where they're kind of trying to dissect it and you all kind of keep one another to a standard and you can't, you kind of can't get away with going down a certain like dogmatic route or at least it becomes very apparent quite quickly, I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I think also if I, if I can sort of compliment, uh, I really want to compliment your approach because you're you're aware of these things, you're looking for them, you're you're actively 
sort of the you found this article and you you're also been aware of this previously I, I assume you know the different uh things we talk about in the article and from your podcast as well i think you're very nuanced which is is awesome and i think nuance is a big important piece here because once you sort of um go down one you, that you can only do things one way, you know, like one training approach or one method. I think it's good for marketing because then you can position yourself in the market. But in terms of like nuance, I think it's important that, you know, there's in a lot of individual variation. Some people respond well to the ketogenic diet. Some people respond well to the, uh, to fasting, intermittent fasting. Some people respond well to, some people will respond well, no matter what the diet is because they have amazing genetics. So there's, I think that's also a very important point. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, and I mm. think what you said there is completely true in that mm. regard. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, people love black and white answers and they that's yeah. i guess that's why science is a bit scary to some people because it's like it doesn't really give you a, a black and white answer there's a few things we were very very certain about but it, it doesn't really give you answers it kind of gives you more kind of, kind of mm. rabbit holes to go down in future and it gets you closer to a truth but i don't think it ever kind mm. of fully necessarily reveals that truth um but yeah people like the black and white this kind of that's easy to sell and it's simpler like if there's bad foods it's like just avoid these and you're gonna your diet's perfect mm. now whereas it's kind of nuanced more complex and people are like are oh, bore off like i don't want to don't want to hear about this so yes. it's trying to and keep your kind of yourself up to date like you said like you might train a certain way that might seem like science and it might seem like it's providing results but you might learn something new further down the line and now you you change what you're doing uh and i think mm. that's important as well and i guess that's where the beauty of science comes in where you get more and more data and research to kind of back up various arguments that can kind of point you in the right direction more so yeah definitely it's always like that's the process of science you know you you're never really you never stop you just keep on going and you keep like you said you keep on building on the knowledge that you have which means that you need to periodically you might need to update your recommendations guidelines um because things are always changing which is, uh, I think is cool, but it might be a bit, you know, like it, I, I assume people listening to this are thinking, well, I don't have time to keep up with 10 different fields uh, in science. And, you know, uh, but I think the best, the best answer then would be just to, you know, follow Steve Hall or, you know, follow Brian Schoenfeld, uh, Stuart Phillips, you know, Greg Knuckles, follow these evidence-based fitness guys that are doing content on podcasts and articles and infographics. I think that's a, that's a very easy way to keep, stay updated on the, on the research without having to read like 10 studies every day. And I wonder if you'd agree on this, Adam, but I think a lot of the the kind of core principles of science and like your core training philosophies, your mm. core diet philosophies, they're not going to suddenly like, ah, oh, the next day you're like, oh, it seems calorie deficit doesn't work or something like this, where it's just <laughs> like suddenly uh, kind of flip-flops. It's more so just these, these small mm. little changes and they might build up to be a significant change at some point. Uh, but yeah, it's not like um, if someone doesn't keep up to date, like every month or week or even year probably not too much is probably even changing in a year for a lot of people yeah and you know to get into that you know all the things that we're trying to optimize that's like the the forest for the trees um 
you can focus all your attention on like things like training frequency how often you train or you can focus on the exercise selection and you can focus on did you get 100 calories more or less today all these things while mentally satisfying perhaps for many of us who like optimization um these are the things that matter less you know you know the 20 80 percent principle like 20 percent um, yeah. yeah it's like um you you can by being adherent to the gym going you know being having adherence good sleep and eating in a calorie deficit or a calorie surplus depending on your goals like the really basic fundamental things you know um and doing strength training like these are the things that will get you them 80 percent of the progress whenever you start look, going beyond these things and looking into the small details you can still eke out performance gains which is really important if you're like a competitor or trying to get really really fit you know for a show um but it's not actually it's not that super important for just having a good progress you know so no absolutely i think that's i mean that's very very well said uh, i think yeah like if anything felt overwhelming now you can feel a little bit less overwhelmed and like rest assured yeah. just focus on your big rocks there um one of the ones i did want to cover because i think it's probably another one that's maybe a, a little bit contentious in some ways is kind of animal studies uh, and oh, yeah. kind of what impact that would have yes so animal studies uh, is in my like i i really like them but i i dislike how they're being used because uh, they are often abused in the sense that um first of all researchers won't state in the abstract that this is an animal study even though in my experience uh, or in my opinion it should be in the title like rat study or rodent study you know because animal studies that are done do not transfer to humans uh, it, it should be i feel like it should be very obvious there's actually research looking at the different um the differences in humans and animals and how they when they can and can't be transferable some things are more transferable than others but you can't do a study on 20 rats and say that look the rats uh they for we forced the rats to do like 20 reps on their front limb you know which uh, would be like the bicep of, of the human or whatever <laughs> and, and then assume that the training program of the rats is going to uh, apply to us it's just like exploratory you know you they're exploratory you, you try to first you try it on the on the animals and then you can maybe if it's ethically acceptable you can do it on humans as well um but there, there, there it's an issue you know you animal studies do not transfer uh to humans and i'm, I'm i feel like they too often uh, on forums there they are you know people discuss their rats as if they are humans uh, and uh, you know it sounds kind of silly but i i think it's important to to be sh be sure you know read carefully who are the subjects you know if this abstract doesn't state that the subjects are human you know what are they you know are they you know it's important <laughs> it's important who the subjects are in the study yeah i know an example that always comes to my mind is i think it's like aspartame and how mm -hmm. like people are like oh like it's very likely to cause cancer and it's caused cancer and look mm. at all these studies and it's like the kind of quantity to body mass of aspartame those <laughs> the, the rats were having was just like absurd and it's, this is i guess for the listeners like just when when you see something that just sounds mm -hmm. like completely counter to most of what's been talked about in the evidence-based sphere 
just kind of go and check it out. But it's scary that it's not in the abstract and it doesn't need to be mm. there because I think, oh, I mean, this is, I mean, you've just described exactly why you shouldn't just read the abstract. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if people are like interested in, like they, some people might be asking, uh, well, what's the, what's the, what's the difference? You know, what's the difference? Uh, so I would actually look at, you know, you can, an example is go to Google and write in AMPK expression, uh, human rodent. And then AMPK is basically, it's one of the things in the muscle or cells that determines uh, whether the cells, you know, will grow or, or, you know, shrink in muscles, for example, you know, how energy is being used. It's, uh, it's related to mTOR. Uh, and the, the growth, which mTOR is another thing that's that's being maybe abused a lot because it's like a me mechanism within cells that can that is often used to try to predict gains in muscle, but um, it's often not that easy or simple because I think um, cancer affects mTOR as well. So uh, this is very I'm, I'll try not to get into like the technical things here, but it's there's there's many things you can look at in animals and humans that are different. So I guess, I know you said you like animal studies as like a, mm. I guess like, like you said, an exploratory, like an interest, but you wouldn't mm. be drawing conclusions and applying that to humans. And I think you mentioned there's some potentially, depending on what they're studying, there's some more applicable ways to use them. And they, they like there might be like, I don't know if you're studying this and using animals, don't look at it particularly strongly but if you're doing this mm. maybe that's a little bit more similar to how a human would react in that situation is mm. that what what do you have any examples of that i can't come up with any well i know animals are you there's one a good use they're used sometimes to test like you said with aspartame even though it's not a good perfectly good transfer they you can use animals i believe to test uh like what if there's like a new substance or drug or something, you can test it on animals to see how they react. And if they have a high tolerance for it, there's a reasonable chance that humans will also have a, a high tolerance, even though you can't draw the distinction directly. It's like, it's they're often used for safety tests. You know, like if something, if a new drug kills the rats immediately, even at very, very small doses, then you won't even test it on humans because there is- I got you. So, so there are, there are definitely a lot of good uses there. Yeah. I know one of the ones just cause I'm currently not that I'm wearing it now, uh, doing a bit mm -hmm. of a weighted vest kind of experiment. Yes. <laughs> uh, and yeah. I know that for some of the, like the gravitostat, uh, kind of mm -hmm. uh, studies where it's shown that it might be an independent kind of, uh, predictor of like appetite that's outside of leptin with the weight on the mm -hmm. kind of bones and the osteocytes. Just completely wrote like that's rodent based, like there's no human studies. Mm. Um, I, I have no idea if that's at all particularly applicable. Like you said, it's it's probably just more exploratory, and I wouldn't be like being yeah. like everyone in their fat loss phases wear your weighted vests because you're guaranteed this result. It's more like uh, maybe just like if if it's kind of a a fun thing for you and it suits your lifestyle, you could try it out. But it's mm. a rodent study, and there's not much. Yeah, and you mentioned things like leptin, like hormones, like, you know, leptin. They're, they're different, you know, uh, they're different in animals and humans. And even though some aspects of them are, are similar, they're different enough that, you know, even the difference between humans in mean hormones can be big. And they're e these differences are even bigger between, you know, different species. 
So yeah, so it's like you said, it's 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 kind of fun when they do like vest, uh, you know, weighted vests on animals, and just you know, it's it's kind of interesting. But I would never, I would never directly apply to humans. You know, personally, I need at least to have like a strong conclusion about anything. I prefer to have at least three randomized controlled trials in humans that are like of good quality with enough subjects. Um, that's generally, a, I would say, that's a standard that can't always be filled, but. Um, once you have enough studies of in humans, then you can be generally safe that something is going to work. Yeah, and I guess, mm. uh, like you said there, that that's a really nice little kind of ballpark for people. And I, would you generally say, looking at like meta-analyses, systematic reviews for people who are interested in using science, but kind of are not wanting to dig into individual studies, would you say they're a good kind of starting point to draw maybe some conclusions from? I think you would... Uh, yeah, looking at uh, reviews and meta-analyses is much better than single studies because if the author has done a good job, then they will give you a good summary. But again, then the risk is that if you need to know how to read the review because the authors make mistakes, you know, they uh, we've looked at a lot of reviews in, in SciFit and we found that oftentimes, or not often, but it happens that authors maybe misinterpret the studies and then the review is also... Uh, flawed as a result so i would still make the recommendation for uh, unless you're like really interested in science i would still instead fo follow you know follow your podcast and, and your content uh, because then you get the um the summaries uh from from the topics from the like for example you had uh, you know mike israel you've had you know, him on and uh, the it's it's so much easier to just listen to a podcast or uh, follow some of the 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 biggest names in the in the industry uh, or read their articles much better than trying to read and understand the review unless you have scientific training or want to get scientific training then i would say you can start reading reviews and studies yeah, yeah. no i think that's well said it's it's something i'm Again, like I said, I'm a practitioner and I feel like that that's where I should be spending most of my time. If I tried, it's a full-time commitment trying to do like what you're doing in terms of like running through these things. And also, like you mentioned, if you're not trained to do it, you're going to really struggle to, um, not that people should necessarily completely be away from it, but at least you understand now, if like you said, if someone like Mike Isratel is saying this study is not necessarily as powerful as what, if you read it, it might be. Now you understand mm -hmm. why maybe some mm. of the reasons we've included in here to us why. Um, so I want to make sure people uh, kind of know where they can, I guess your website is where they can reach out to you. Thank you so much for this. Uh, I think it's been really, really excellent. And I think people hopefully have taken a lot away from it and have a, a just a better understanding of kind of science and how it works and how, if they want to kind of dig into it a bit more, what they can do. Uh, but yeah. if they want to learn more about you, Adam, where should they go? And yeah, have you got any exciting kind of future directions or anything you want to talk about? You, you can also do that now. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, uh, Steve. So I want to say first, you know, there, it's a great honor to be on this podcast. And uh, I know this podcast has been going on for a long time. And I've, uh, I used to watch it, uh, uh, many of the episodes I've watched uh, previously. Uh, so it's it's really great honor to be here. And um, if you want to, like, follow me, it's on sci-fit.net, sci which is, stands for the Science of Fitness and there we review various topics and uh you know we can spend we can spend um, half a year a year on an article just to review it properly 
so right now we're, we're doing a review on sleep, how sleep affects uh, fat loss. And, you know, Amazing. And it's kind of cool because we looked at this previously and there aren't a lot of like science-based articles on this, on this topic. So we were like, okay, cool. We'll do, we'll do one. Uh, and it's kind of cool. Just a small spoiler. If you have very poor sleep, then it can actually hinder your progress. Uh, so it just goes to the importance of sleep in terms of things like fat loss. You know, you wouldn't, I didn't necessarily think that poor sleep would give you slower fat loss. But uh, it might. So um, yeah, on the site, we do a lot of reviews that are like practically focused. You know, we, tr- we yeah. always try to find out like what can you do differently in your um, diet and or training program to to have like uh, good progress. So we try to simplify the science as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. I know there was recently one on I think it was failure training that was one done and that was very. Like, like you said, I mean, some of these things take you a long time, like half a year. I'm not surprised because it was very yep. in-depth and the audience, as well as myself, very interested in sleep, um, talk about it quite a lot on the podcast. So that is one mm. I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Adam. I'll make sure that your website is linked below so people can go check that out. And uh, yeah, take care and we'll talk to you soon. All right. See you guys. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.